Um, welcome to the ISIS podcast series. Um, Stephen Seder is a Tony Award, Grammy Award, and Laurence Olivier Award-winning American poet, playwright, lyricist, television writer, and screenwriter. He wrote the book and lyrics for the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical Spring Awakening, and in 2020, he also released his debut novel, Alice by Heart, an ad adaptation of his off-Broadway musical of the same name. A graduate of Washington University St. Louis with a master's degree in English literature from Princeton University, Stephen has dedicated his writing talents to musical theater, drama, and music. Um, so uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. Um, the first question I would like to ask is, um, I just want to start at the beginning by asking how, uh, what, like, or what drove you to sort of become a writer? Oh, I, I think it, uh, I think it was kind of a destiny, which I would suppose a lot of writers would say or actors would say. I found it so early. I was sick a lot as a child. I was in and out of hospitals when I was very young and I was in a kind of oxygen tent at home, like an oxygen, you know, like a tent. And um, I, I don't know. I did, my mother um, had gone back to school and she would, um, she would, come back and read me Shakespeare. She would read Shakespeare to me and I, I have such vivid memories of walking in my backyard, like trying to write down songs and then my mother played piano and we'd try and make sense of them. But I, um, I also didn't go to school a lot. And I remember the first books I found in the library that I loved that felt like my own, not the first books I read of course, but you know, it would be like Emily Dickinson. Um, and Walt Whitman, these were great early loves of mine. So I don't know, I, I discovered acting when I was in university and I thought that was gonna be my path for a while. But um, writing really won and I, I suppose there was no um, question that it would. That's lovely. I feel like that is a lot of way, of the way a lot of writers feel. You're just immediately drawn to it from your youngest days, playing make-believe in your yard. Um, yeah. To write plays and charge admission and use the children of the neighborhood and charge like admission you know, and put them on. It was crazy. Um, but yes. That's amazing. I used to force my siblings to be in my plays and to this day I'm sure they hold it against me. Um, I find it kind of interesting that you grew up in and out of hospitals and not going to not really going to school because that would seem to indicate that maybe you didn't have the same kind of collaboration or um, peer association in your younger years, but your work has been quite collaborative. And I was just wondering if that assumption is fair and if so, how that affected your, your collaborative work and the collaborative nature of your work. Well, that's a profound point. You know, um, in book four of Paradise Lost, when we meet Eve, she's telling, it's like her origin story. And she sees herself reflected in a pool and she says, there would I have pined with vain desire, but that she hears this voice behind her and it says, um, what thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature is thyself, but follow me and I will bring thee where no shadow stays thy coming. And that's, um, that's what I think of. Like we live our lives in conversation with ourselves. So in some sense, we are, I have been my, my, my most longstanding collaborator, you know, and I have certainly lived with so much of literature in my mind and authors, like just citing Milton right now to answer something deeply personal. It's very, you know, it, it lives in my head. You know, these are fragments I've shored against my ruin. I have these fragments with me. And when I'm writing, even poetry, which is maybe the most solitary work, you're always kind of 
getting out of your way to let the you know interior paramour in the muse in the voice in you're always working with yourself but at the same time what i found with collaboration it's adam's voice who says but follow me and i will bring thee where no shadow stays like coming that's when i found frank vadekind he took me where my shadow kept staying me kept holding me i was able you know with spring awakening it, maybe it's you know Shakespeare with Hollandshed and and Philip Sidney and um, King Lear, but you have a text, you have an author, you have a partner. I I would feel like I had to ask his permission for doing things. I felt it with Alice with Lewis Carroll. He was my first collaborator in Alice, and it informed the lyrics, the language, the mindset, the world of the show. Um, that said. Um, I was for so many years, you know, a solitary writer and, you know, poetry and plays and I had a dramaturg whom I trusted and worked with. Um, and perhaps I yearned to find a partner as, you know, maybe Eve does. But um, when I met Duncan in 1999 and we started writing songs together, it was something I had never anticipated. You know, that I would, I never thought of myself as a lyricist. I never thought I'd write lyrics. I, but I found myself, writing lyrics, this is a whole separate question, but writing lyrics is a very different enterprise, I find, than writing poetry. Albeit my influences, my partners in writing lyrics have certainly been poets and mainly, you know, British poets. But, um, but it took my songs, you know, it took these words, it's like they were intended for a voice and they become a voice. They, you know, he brought music to them. So those collaborations are very pure in my life where I, um, I've, I've never really collaborated. I have only once or twice collaborated with someone else on a lyric. But when I write a stanza, first of all, Duncan's already my partner when I'm writing it because I can hear his voice in it. Or James Bourne, do you know James Bourne from the band Busted? He's my partner on, um, two musicals and which we've developed primarily in the UK and I can kind of hear his music in my head um, but then the lyric is set and it becomes something else it becomes you know maybe um, I'm sorry to be citing so many people but you know this is how my head works you know it's it's Aristotle you know that something is there in potentia that the song is sort of already within the lyric in a way um, so that transports me out of myself with directors. That's one of my favorite forms of collaboration where they can really help. Um, first of all, they can bring a story into a room and you bring it into three dimensions. So then you have actors and you have the voices you've written coming to life before you, but you also have a director as your guide, as you're crafting the journey of a play or of a musical. Um, with my novel, I know this is a long answer, so I'm about to end it. With my novel, um, I certainly had my partner on the, the Alice musical, Jesse Nelson. She was with me. She wasn't in the room with me at all working on the book, but we had forged so much of the story of the play together and I could hear her, her and I could hear her in my mind reacting. And then I had my editors um, who were very helpful. That was a difficult um, translation from the musical to the book.
So there in, is a very long answer to a very short question. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. Um, like I like I absolutely sort of like uh, agree with you. Sort of um, you know um, how writing is like a conversation and like how it sort of is always in collaboration with like different voices and different people. Um, and actually, kind of sort of touches upon the next question, uh, which was what we were going to ask you was about sort of um you know you work with so many sort of artists and like editors as you've just mentioned like um just yeah. maybe, like uh Bird Bacharach um Andreas Carlson <laughs> um but like I think it was just a very simple question about like who has been your sort of your favorite person to work with oh I can't answer that because <laughs> I, I would be throwing everyone else under the bus but so I, I won't but um and you know I would say Homer is what I would say the Iliad but but, 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 I have to say, because you mentioned him and because I was looking at a picture of the two of us this morning, my um, collaboration with Bert Backrack has been one of the great joys of my life. My eyes could well with tears as I tell you this. He, he's also, he's in LA, one of the people who has most looked after me and looked out for me and been concerned for me during this pandemic. He's a remarkable man. It was a dream of mine to work with him, but I didn't even ever know how. And then um, I met him, you know, I don't have to tell you the story of how we began working together, but he, um, Bert, when you write a song with Bert, it's very, when Duncan and I write a song, we're never in the room together. We have two solitary processes, same with James Bourne. I write the lyric, I give it to him, he writes the music. When you're with Bert, I write the lyric first and I give it to him. Then you sit down at the piano and you are sitting with Bert Backrack and he's playing the words he wrote. And he'll say, you know, this is, this is so real, man. I love this. And then it'll be, but, but I hear this kind of thing. And he'll start singing you this riff, this musical riff. And he has an old time, um, like cassette deck and then he pushes, you know, and you get, you push it and you, you take down <laughs> Bert singing, not a, you know, blah, 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 that, that to you. <laughs> and then I take it home and I have to turn it into electronic information <laughs> so I can listen to it. And then um, I write lyrics for that part and then I revise the part. And then, um, then you go back to his house and then you sit back down at the piano. It's, um, uh, it's been a dream come true to work with Bert, I have to say. And um, we have a musical coming out, coming forth, um, that we've worked on together. And it will be his first original musical since 1968 when he wrote Promises, Promises. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, he's an incredible guy, I have to say. That's amazing. I love just Sorry. Go you go ahead. I was just gonna say I love the description of that process of working with him. That it's it, it's very vivid. Now I can picture you with the cassettes. Yeah, yeah. I I remember. Uh, well, I have to say, but but when I first met Bert, um, he we had this great meeting and it was very friendly and warm. And um, I was leaving. He, he said, he said to me as I was leaving, he said, well, I guess you have your partner in the theater, but if you ever just have a lyric sometime that you want to show me. And I said, I brought one. And I had been with him all this time. So we were leaving and he said, he was like, oh. And then I gave him the lyric and we were walking to the door and he started reading it. And then he stopped 
And then he started reading it out loud. And then he turned around and walked back into his study and he sat down. And so I followed him in and I sat back down and he read the lyric aloud to me. And he was saying these things like, oh man, you know, like, like I said to you, Lesson felt this. And um, he really liked it, I guess. And then we left, I left and I thought, well, that was my meeting with Bert Backrack. Well, it wasn't that great. And um, he was leaving for Australia, so I wasn't gonna hear from him for months. He was conducting his first symphony. And then he came, I got this call one day, months later, it was like, this is Bert. Um, I have a kind of thing for that song, if you wanna hear it. It was like, if so, and then I went to his house and we sat down and he played this song verbatim, the, the lyric that I'd given him with the bars of music written over my page of lyrics. It was the same piece of paper I'd given him. And um, it was beautiful. And I got to say, that's so beautiful, Bert. And he said, our first one should be a great one. And he said, love songs. That's what I write, love songs. So that's, anyway, that's what we've written for all these years now. Sorry to divert, to go off, but he's, he's a remarkable guy. No, that's exactly what we want in these kinds of conversations is just to have them go in a nat more natural direction. Um, speaking of kind of like, writing lyrics you also spoke about writing poetry and mm -hmm. novels and you work across so many different mediums and i was just kind of wondering mm -hmm. how writing in different mediums informs how each medium kind of informs the other if they impact if being able to write lyrics has impacted the way you approach writing a novel or vice versa um i guess so I guess I, I probably lead with poetry because that's my first instinct and those are the writers who have meant the most to me are poets. But, um, and when you write the book of a musical, which I'd never done prior to writing lyrics, um, it's like an extended lyric. I really felt in Spring Awakening that there had to be a consonance always between the, um, even though it's this sort of formal 19th century-ish diction, and then this postmodern poetry of the lyrics, I thought they had to be in communication with each other. But um, I would say um, they all inform one another, and um, the difference probably is what I'm reading at the time when I'm working on each thing. And that used to be very confusing for me. What can I, how can I be reading this when I'm, I'm writing a movie? But um, yeah, I think I, um, I'm writing a novel now, which I've been working on for a lot of years. And one of the reasons I did the Alice novel was to come back to my novel. And uh, I find, um, I don't know, like all streams flow into that same river in some way. I don't know if that's a good answer, but um, yeah, they, they certainly inform each other. That's what I can say. And in my head, I'm always switching back and forth um, between one and the, in my day, I'm often switching back and forth. Yeah, I think that's, Alex, wonderful that you're so able to use like so many different sort of mediums. Um, like, <laughs> I am not like apt in any, um, so. <laughs> um, but like, I think that was sort of like, well, one of the things that we actually like found really like fascinating, um, like reading up on sort of like your recent work, um, especially about your novel, um, your debut novel. So um, we, uh, it was like, kind of interesting to us that um, you first chose to write the musical before writing like Alice by Heart, um, which is sort of not a traditional decision. And we were just wondering what motivated you and like where did this idea come from? And 
Well, you know what, after in the wake of the success of Spring Awakening, it's going back years ago, my, as Duncan and I, we were already working on a couple musicals, but um, a couple of people suggested to me that we look at Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And um, I thought it would never make a musical because it's so, it's like a story that's all middle. There's no beginning and end, or there's no middle, if you want to say it's all beginning and end. It's, you know, this series of phantasmagoric visitations on this cipher of a girl. And I thought it's all partings and meetings. I thought that we first set out to write it, um, to write our version of the Alice material as a kind of um, music video project, We're a song. So it was gonna be a song for each, the magic carpet ride of each chapter. And then um, one day I went, I attended, um, there was a tribe of young uh, people who were, uh, I was, they were, it was my friend, Jesse Nelson, who became the director of, of Alice. And she was my writing partner in a couple movies. And um, her daughter was one of the leads of this group, which also included people like Ben Platt. Do you know who he is? Of Dear Evan Hansen and, and um, Beanie Feldstein, people, young people who have now become big stars. But um, they were performing a night's work of, worth of songs from Spring Awakening. And I brought Leah Michelle as my, guest and these kids were like 14 15 I was sitting with Leah who was just starting Glee and I had met her when she was 14 and I thought oh this could be a story about how we leave childhood behind and that was my sort of insight into creating a musical which took many years and the musical became it's a story about a book it's about what a book can mean to you what a novel can get you through. Going back to when I was in my oxygen tents at home, books were my everything. And uh, you know that's, that's where I could live. Those were the worlds I could imagine. And um, that's, I don't know if you know the story of Alice, but it's you know a young girl during the bombing of London in 1941, who's trapped in a tube station and her friend is quarantined. And she, they have this book that they love, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. She, she believes she can read it to him. She can transport him back to Wonderland and he'll be all right. He'll be able to run there and breathe there. She's delusional. But this musical goes through her stages of acceptance of grief and loss that she could lose this boy. So toward the end of this journey, our producer, of the musical said to me, you know, it would be really cool to have a, a book we could promote of, you know, of Alice. And I said, well, why don't we just tell people to buy Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? It's like a great, it's a classic book. And he was like, no, no, no. It'd be really cool to have like, I don't know. He said, even like a picture book. And that, when he said that, it was that inadvertent echo of the beginning of the Alice book, you know, that uh, what's the use of a book without pictures or conversations, Alice says. I thought, oh, maybe there's something in this. And I thought, maybe I could write a book in conversation, not only with the Alice book, but with the books that had meant so much to me, that had gotten me through the same way this book got our Alice Spencer through. So that's how I kind of back-ended into it, writing the book. And so then I wrote a book about a book, and about what a book can mean to you. Um, and it was a lot of work. It was very hard going in that direction. 
I was just saying this um, two days ago to my editor of that book, that the parts that brought me great joy in writing that book were all the fresh parts, all the, the um, fresh writing of fiction, the historical fiction, the sort of flashback to her life, the landscape of London in 1940. The hard part, the part that was like pulling teeth was, you know, adding he said, she said, so I'm trying to, the part you would think would be easiest, just transcribing what we had done with the mad tea party. But that was that I found the hardest, trying to write what you see in actors. Cause I was glad, that's part of what I loved about theater. You never had to get bogged down and he said, she said. But um, but yeah, so that was the, that was how that happened. Um, Alice by Heart is not kind of your first traipse back into like these historical settings. Like you've written, obviously Spring Awakening takes place mm -hmm. quite far in the past and you've written things like Nero. And I was wondering kind of how you get into those headspaces of like picturing those historical time periods. Do you have a specific research process? I know you've talked a lot about classical references. Do those play a role in how you get into that mindset? Mm -hmm. Well, there's always a contemporary prompt of some kind for me. Like with Nero, I mean, could we be living in a more Neronian age in America right now? You know, where, I mean, thankfully Twitter has just taken away our Nero's fiddle, but it's been crazy. And that began, you know, out of a very specific political feeling about America at that time. It began years ago when um, George Bush declared victory in Iraq and I, we weren't even at war. And I, I remember calling Duncan and said, you know, Rome is burning. And, um, and then, as you say, part of what drew me to it was that the great scandal of Nero's reign was he was more interested in Greek aesthetics than he was in Roman rule. So that was like a way in for me because I love Greek literature, um, which as I said earlier, I studied at Oxford. Um, but um, I do a lot of reading, a lot of research, but I also um, let my, you know, I, I um, this whole interview is just me quoting other authors, which is not great. But but I have to say, I stand with Shelley, who says that that you know poetry, you know, supersedes history in the telling of history. You know, if if you you have to, you know, the, the literary heritage of an era informs what I write as much as the historical documents I read. For the Alice novel. For the Alice musical, I did some research. For the Alice novel, I did a great deal more. And I read a lot of journals from the Blitz because um, the newspapers wouldn't carry the full story of the devastation of London because they didn't want to give hope to the, to, uh, the Nazis, to Germany at the time. They didn't want to talk about how great the devastation was. So, it's it's like this remarkably high percentage of Londoners who were there through the Blitz wrote journals. So there are a lot of these journals because people wanted to give them real accounts of what they were going through. So I read a lot of those and I, I read, um, you know, novels from the time, Graham Greene, um, Virginia Woolf's diaries, they're fantastic. And that's her last volume of diaries, she dies during the Blitz. Um, so, I do immerse myself, but I, you know, I, poetry guides the way, in a way. And you have to be willing to, um, you know, with Spring Awakening, 
I always wanted, I would always be, I was on Vita Kun's side. No, no, we're sticking to this. And Michael Mayer, my director would push me, Steven, Steven, make it yours, make it yours. You can make it better. And I would have to find a collaborative way to get there. And that's kind of how I felt about period too. You have to honor the period. You can't just pretend it's not there. Um, but at the same time, you're crafting it for a modern audience. I didn't want Venla's journey to feel like some 19th century Ophelia who's defeated. I wanted her to be a young woman who could, hers, who's, you know, her journey of herself and her body could be resonant for a young audience today. So. No, yeah, that's um, what I think. <laughs> um, I think that's um, it's just like sorry, just to, like pick up on Spring Awakening. I think and like Vedic Kind and sort of like um that process um because um if I, I'm not I'm, like I'm not sure if you know, but um I think the Spring Awakening are like um like Vedic Kind's pulling the and like um is actually like a set text for um German undergrads um so I didn't I, know. yeah um so I think they would love to hear you speak like about sort of you know what like drew you to this particular text and like as you were talking about sort of um you know working with like directors uh like um. Um, saying like how you were like wanting to collaborate it and make it yours, but but like through like this process of collaboration. I was just wondering like you know what drew you to the text, um, and sort of like uh what like what was it that made you most like want to translate this in your own sort of way, um, and like moving forwards and like um just your process throughout um that. Sorry about this like very messy. That's question. all right. I, I you know um Spring Awakening was like a forbidden book that I discovered in high school in a small town in the Midwest, and I thought oh my god I can't believe I'm reading this like I. I just like, you know, this book in my room that was forbidden. And um, I loved it. And then when I left uh, Princeton and I moved to New York and I was going to act, or I thought I was going to act, um, Hanschen's monologue, you know, in the outhouse, that was my like audition piece. And um, so it, it was something that was very um, dear to me. And um, I always well, I always felt that the play was full of these arias, you know, of these young people, of this angst. I thought, oh, this should be an opera. And um, many years later, 1999, New Year's, I met Duncan Sheik. And we began, the night we met, we ended up writing a song together. He had never envisioned writing songs with someone else, and I had never envisioned really songwriting. Um, and, uh, we ended up writing several songs together for a play of mine. Um, and he came to see that play. By the time he came to see the play, we had already written four or five songs together. And he had and that writing together was me giving him a lyric, him setting it verbatim and giving it back to me. Um, this whole story involves London, but I'm gonna leave it out so we can, because I, I know this is getting long, but I was working on a show in London with a, with um, someone that he thought was cool. And um, so that was part of why he first asked me, is there a lyric in the play you're writing? Anyway, as uh, our song. Um, in any event, we had written a number of songs and he said we should do an album together, which we did. That was our first work together. It's called Phantom Moon. It came out on Nonsuch. And, uh, that he came to, I mean, that we had just written these four or five songs. He came to see this play, Arms on Fire. And uh, afterwards we were standing talking and he said, this is so cool, so cool. And I said, well, you know, we could do something together for the theater. And he made this face and he said, musical theater. And I said, oh no, we could do something cool. And he said something to the effect of, 
if I'm going to do something in theater, I want the music to be relevant to the culture at large. Those weren't his words. They're probably my words, but that was the idea behind them, the brunt of them. And the minute he said it, whatever he actually said, I thought of Spring Awakening because I just thought that um, it's like those cries, those unanswered cries of young people that I had felt in the play, the place that young people have found release from our expression of those cries for generations had been rock music and pop music. So I thought it was a great fit. So that was kind of the origin of the show. Um, and then at a later point, really well, a later point, like a few days later, I called him and, and he said, you know, I hate in musicals when they're talking and then they're singing and they're talking and it's random. They could be singing about brushing their teeth. And then that was, when I had the idea that the songs would function as internal monologues. And then as we developed it, it became, you know, that we moved into this more timeless era in the songs, which felt contemporary. And, um, you know, retained that classical sort of diction and language and um, decorum of um, 19th century Germany. It also, but it also, getting back to what prompts my um, historical stories, um, it had to do with the shootings at Columbine, which had happened in 1999. I said, you know, we're just not listening to what's going on in the hearts of our children. And that was, that gave us the impetus, really. It gave us the urgency to really get on with this. That was when I called Michael Mayer and asked him to come on board the show. Um, you kind of just mentioned in your answer there about like the classical diction as, as yeah. you're writing. And you also, before we started recording, you were saying that you, when you were at Oxford, you were studying Greek. So I was kind mm -hmm. of wondering like how the linguist in you affects the way you write these other, other your poetry maybe, because we haven't heard as much about, about that yet, or if you want to keep talking about these historical plays. Uh, it affects greatly everything I do, my study of language. You know, I just, um, I was just rereading last night Seamus Haney's um, translation of um, Beowulf, which is something I studied in at Oxford, you know, Anglo-Saxon. I thought I've got to get my Anglo-Saxon back. But he talks about the influence of that on his diction of Anglo-Saxon, even as, I don't know where he grew up, like Northern Ireland, I think. Um, but I, um, I love the Greek language and I have less study of Latin, but I have done a fair amount of Latin so I would say it affects me a great deal. I don't know that it's not only my language, though it certainly is, um, but it, when you read Paradise Lost, um, you really feel the presence of Homer and Virgil and Tasso and Milton's language has transformed me. You know, um, the poets I've read, that's, British poets, the American poets, they inform, I think, the way I talk, the way I think, the way when I sit, you know, we're pushing it toward poetry, listening, that's what I hear. So um, it came very naturally to me um, to create a kind of 19th century diction, you know, which, because I've spent so much time in the 19th century you know, with, with authors. And um, and 19th century concerns feel close to me because I've lived in them, you know, in um, George Eliot, you know, or Dickens. Um, I read a lot of Dickens for Alice by Heart. 
for the, the novel. Um, but let me say this, I'm writing a novel now. And uh, that novel I've been working on for, I worked on it for some years and I didn't look at it for many years. And one of the reasons I undertook the, you know, harebrained scheme of turning Alice the musical into Alice the novel was so I could kind of get back to my novel and get back to fiction. And this is a love story set in the 90s in America, in LA. And it's really informed by books like Madame Bovary and um, Anna Karenina. You know, there's a, a woman at the center and this is an adultery happening in the central story. And I found myself rereading the Iliad and brushing up my Greek and sort of really being in it. And that has transformed the book, I have to say. And it's not just the language, but the incidents, the mechanism of the gods, the, the miracle things that happen in the Iliad, the preciousness of peace against the landscape of war. So I think you, um, you carry your mentors and your, the, your studies with you in everything you do. You know, and reading um, in other languages has been a great source of sustenance to me. Proust means the world to me. And if I weren't, my, my friend at, at age 25, my friend insisted that I read it in French. And my French was pretty rusty at that point. And I did, I read the whole work in French. And then it's become part of my life. You know, Proust is really, like, I feel very close to him. And it was just an absurd interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I think it like um completely sort of matches with the audience we have because um sort of all the texts you're citing are like you know things that um the English students have. Like yesterday, um, like I you know uh, for my class tomorrow, I have to talk about Troilus and Cressida, which really? is yeah a retelling of like the Iliad, as you know. <laughs> um, so. I think, yeah, I think sort of this has been like really great in terms of, um, but actually, um, actually like talking about sort of we carry our mentors and heroes within us. Um, I was wondering if like, um, so like we looked at sort of the past and like um, discussed sort of that, but like uh, in terms of like contemporary literature or like looking yeah. at the future, I was wondering if sort of any like um, new voices or um, sort of any voices have inspired you, have informed your like um, creativity um, sort of in the, the current time in any way. Many. Um, you know, I love the Canadian poet Anne Carson, who's a classicist herself. Do you love Anne? Yeah, I love Anne. <laughs> yeah, isn't she remarkable? You know, I've my son has studied with her, actually. And she's a remarkable, feisty woman. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, this story involves London, too. I'm going to put it aside. There's, yeah. But um, I love Anne Carson. I, my favorite living poet has now died. My favorite, I said my favorite living poet for a long time was Ted Hughes. But Ted Hughes, I know we're not talking about someone future right now, but he, I can't tell you what he's meant to me. Um, there are a lot of um, playwrights and um, novelists too who are living now who, who mean a lot to me. Um, but I think I, I tend to, um, I think I tend to gravitate, like Susan Sontag was a mentor to me. Now, obviously she's, she's passed away, but there are a number of late 20th and early 21st century writers whom I read and who inspire me. That's, that's what I would say. You're looking for names, but I always feel, I always feel badly saying certain playwrights names because then you're leaving others out no definitely yeah i'm like it's not it's just 
wondering if there's you know any like um pieces that you sort of like um you know have read recently or anything um but like oh yeah like no names needed i, I think it's <laughs> that we don't want to leave anybody out 100 percent true and going to the theater which of course i sorely miss um was always a source of inspiration a uh, carol churchill let's talk about carol churchill she's a she's a grand dame of the theater right now I mean, she's an amazing playwright it's been amazing all these years um, but there are many young writers whom I find very exciting too. Will Eno, for example, is an American uh, playwright. Um, but anyway, there are, there are plenty. I like how, because you've been kind of talking about how you have opportunities to be in conversation and reinterpret other people's work. But then there's also a lot of people who are taking your work and kind of carrying that with them. Um, I, I was saying like one of my favorite versions of Spring Awakening is the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just kind of wondering what that's like to see your work kind of take on a life of its own and be reconstructed and reproduced by people with different visions and different talents. It's really, it, first of all, it's really inspiriting. It gives you a lot of spirit and force and drive. And it's also very encouraging that your work may have some kind of future you know, that it can, can, and then it can sustain that. I thought what Deaf West did that was so beautiful, uh, there, they did so many things that were so beautiful, but one thing that was really beautiful, I didn't know the history, 19th century, you know, deaf people, how deaf people were treated, and the way that was handled in the musical was beautiful. The layers it held of understanding. It means a lot to me. At this, I mean, there are um, times we have said no to um, production ideas for Spring Awakening, but there, most of the time we say yes and embrace it. And sometimes get involved. You know, with Deaf West, um, this is airing once Dirty Linen in public, but with how we held back in this interview. But there was, there, was a, um, there was a production downtown in LA, that's how it began. And I had a lot of issues with liberties they'd taken with the text and I had to be a bit strict with them. And um, they responded really well. Michael Arden is brilliant, the director. And there was another production in LA um, at a somewhat larger venue and a great deal more work had, had been done. And there was a larger artistic team. Spencer Lift had joined as the um, choreographer. And uh, Duncan and I came to the previews and we started giving a lot of notes. Then when there was a decision to bring that production to Broadway, which we had to really think about and finally we approved, there we were we were very much a part of it from that point on. I was very, I was in rehearsals. I even um, grew so accustomed to watching them sign, though I hadn't known sign language, living in that, that community that was another language to learn. That was remarkable. That was life altering. And um, it reached a point that I would be reading the signs of the lyrics, signing of the lyrics, and I would give suggestions. And um, for how, because the lyrics are so, um, well, poetic, they're, they're enigmatic, they're unusual. And I would, um, or I would suggest even altering the lyrics to fit a more beautiful sign, you know, slightly. Um, so that became a beautiful collaboration with a very different community. Um, it's exciting to see your work um, re-examined and re-explored. Um, I look forward to more of it. I mean, if it happens, yeah. 
No, that's that, that sounds amazing, and like I, I really hope. Um, actually, there was a um Spring Awakening um sort of re, like a retelling um uh like a show um that Oxford did like last year as well. Um, so like I think it's definitely happening. Frühling Serbachen or 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 our musical. Um, your musical, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it was wonderful. Um, but I think unfortunately that's like sort of all the questions we have for today. Okay. Um, just to like not take too much of your time, but um, maybe we could do like a sort of like a fun ending question for you. Um, just me, uh, like, so, like um, I think uh, like I'm a huge fan of Bert as well. Um, and I was wondering like what your favorite like you know Bert song is, like or like maybe if there isn't a favorite one that like sort of touches you the most. Oh well, I love Walk On By, and I'm really um. I've loved it since my childhood. But I know that Bert um, values, mo well, I, I don't want to speak for him. I know how much Alfie means to Bert and it's meant a lot to me too. And his dog is named Alfie. And uh, that song is so beautiful. So I, um, I mean, there are many songs of Bert's that mean a lot to me, so. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, Alfie also like means like uh, a lot to me. Um, it's one of my sort of most um listened to Bert songs. Um, but yeah, um, thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for giving up your time to talk with us today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this discussion. And if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please follow the Ice Magazine on Facebook, Instagram, or Spotify, and do look out for other episodes in the series. Thank you so much for listening.